Kia ora, and welcome back to Season 2 of the Tourism Geographies Podcast. This is a podcast that showcases research published in Tourism Geographies, a peer-reviewed journal which explores tourism and tourism-related areas of recreation and leisure studies from a geographic perspective. I'm Jamie Gillen, and I'm one of the producers of the episodes for the show. I'm coming to you from Aotearoa, New Zealand at Waipapa Tomatoroa, the University of Auckland. Tato, welcome to the Tourism Geographies podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Jamie Gillen, speaking to you from Aotearoa, New Zealand, the University of Auckland. And it's a pleasure today to be speaking with Shannon Aston, who is a New Zealander living in California. So we are two people living in the opposite countries of where we should be. I'm an American living in New Zealand, and Shannon's a New Zealander living in California. Welcome, Shannon, to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So we are here at, on behalf of Tourism Geographies, which is an international journal of tourism space, place, and environment. And our aim in this podcast is to take scientific research on tourism and speak with authors about what it all means. Mm-hmm. Shannon Aston is an independent researcher who works with the California Department of Transportation as a transportation planner and has a fascinating story to tell not only about the paper, that he's published, but also about the path that he took to publishing the paper and getting it in tourism geographies. The paper that he and his co-authors published is called Policing Freedom Campers, The Place, Class, and Xenophobic Dynamics of Overtourism in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And it was published in uh, July of 2023 and is currently online first. So have a look. It's a great paper. It I, I learned a lot about New Zealand as a result of it, and I'm anxious to get to the conversation. So welcome again, Shannon. So the first question is to ask you is, what what's the problem that this research was setting out to understand? Primarily, this journal article sort of comes from my master's research at Massey University on the Freedom Camping Act 2011 in New Zealand and freedom camping in New Zealand as a wider leisure activity. What I sought to do was look at freedom camping that was going on in New Zealand had gone on from 2011 to uh, 2018 when I conducted the research and look at the environmental and social impacts it was having on different communities um, across the country and the relationship between the central government and the local government and how the devolving of the Freedom Camping Act to the local authorities was uh, putting tension on on the local authorities and also onto the local communities who were, who were experiencing a high volume of freedom camping in their, in their sort of public places. Fantastic. <clears throat> For readers who are not uh, New Zealanders, could you please just clarify what freedom camping is? Oh, yeah, freedom camping, I think in the United States, uh, I think the correct term is dispersed camping, I think. And that's where where you are in a motorized vehicle with sanitation on board toilet and you sleep on board that vehicle and you, you, know, you drive from place to place. Some people would get out of that vehicle and maybe maybe erect a tent, but usually you're camping in that vehicle, you're doing your cooking, you're cleaning in there and, and toileting in there. Um, you drive from place to place. And the freedom in the camping is you can park your car or your vehicle anywhere you like um, up to the Freedom Camping Act said up to 200 metres from any road in New Zealand. So it was very permissive. 
you could almost go anywhere. Um, and as long as the local authority didn't have any problem with it, you could park your vehicle and you could stay, you know, for a number of nights in, in one location, move around the country, avoid hotels, hostels, buses, trains, taxis, and do it all your own way. And it was um, an incredibly popular thing for the rugby, the 2011 Rugby World Cup in 2011. The legislation was passed pretty quickly to deal with an infrastructure shortfall in the country. And then the people who attended the Rugby World Cup tournament, they were they were pretty happy. And then it went so well that they decided to keep it going from 2011 till you know, when I concluded my paper in 2019. Great, great. Awesome um, account and, and snapshot of the freedom camping experience here in New Zealand, which is, uh, you know, the paper focuses a lot on the idea of the discourse of foreign tourists as freedom campers, but it should be mentioned that New Zealanders are also freedom campers and, and do a tremendous amount of camping, um, no matter how you define it uh, throughout the country. Yeah, I, I mean, the basis of the work was the New Zealand camping as New Zealanders was regarded informally as a birthright and, and uh, deeply ingrained in the, in the Pākehā and the Māori culture um, is to get away and experience um, nature on the coast for little to low cost for extended periods, um, you know, whether it was hunting, surfing with your family, you know, kayaking, you know, tramping. The fact that there was a lot of, there was so much tension at the foreign campers over the course of the X period, it, 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 it aroused my curiosity to see why the tension was there when camping was so important to New Zealanders you know, at their core value. That is beautifully put. Thanks, Shannon. That's a very cool way of putting it. All right. So our next question is the background, the context of the of the project. Where is it? Why did you choose the locations? Who did you speak with? And so on. Sure. You know, I, I said briefly in my earlier response, the Rugby World Cup 2011 is the act was passed pretty quickly. It was it went through with, you know, it was it was hasty. And it was to deal with the, the large numbers of people coming to the country. They came, it was such a success. New Zealand decided to keep it going. Over from 2011 up to you know, 2020, the numbers increased from 60,000 Freedom Campers to 110,000. And the, the sort of identity or, or the group who were enjoying Freedom Camping went from the rugby fans to sort of a younger English and European uh, tourists who would come outlay the cost of a vehicle and then they would spend an extended period in New Zealand, three to six months, whatever their visa would allow, but they would stay for a long time and they would go everywhere. Um, and then the, the, the freedom camping vans became a ubiquitous sign around New Zealand and parking lots and beaches and yeah. supermarkets from 2011. As I mentioned earlier, when I would return to New Zealand to visit, I would see more and more camper vehicles and I was, go, I was like, gosh, what is going on here? And the signs and it was a new phenomenon and it yeah, just aroused my curiosity to sort of look into it further. And the research was conducted in Christchurch and specifically two places, Akaroa yeah. and, and New Brighton. Can you speak to a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, yeah, I conducted like a, a compare and contrast thing in Christchurch with the Christchurch City Council, uh, Akaroa, which is on Banks Peninsula's. It's a couple of hours, hour and a half from Christchurch. Beautiful French-inspired village, very quaint. You know, a lot of affluent people live there, holiday homes. You know, it's a very nice place, and it became very popular. New Brighton, 
I'm from that area. It's a coastal area, sort of had been in a state of decline for a couple of decades. The Freedom Campers were drawn to it too because it was coastal um, and it was they, there was a lot of space there. And I also, um, in my master's thesis, I looked at the Selwyn District Council, which was adjacent to uh, the Christchurch City Council, was a more rural area, and they had a lot of space to accommodate Freedom Camping, and they had um, a lot of facilities, and their their model seemed to be working quite well for them. Nice, thank you. <clears throat> I mean, I should add that, you know, when you're a holiday goer in New Zealand, it's impossible to miss these I mean, in the States, we'd call them RVs, but that can almost be too too much to call them an RV because RVs are large vehicles, self-contained. Some of these, some of these are really just our vans or you know, trucks and so on with some with a hatchback on the on the back uh, or a cover on the back. And and it all kind of depends. But when you go to either cities or very beautiful coastal locations or tourism spots. You, 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 these are a fundamental part of the landscape. So Queenstown, I was in Queenstown earlier this year and, you know, obviously as a, as a very hot um, tourist destination that was packed with, uh, with freedom campers. And, and Queenstown and in central Otago became one of the major battlegrounds of the freedom camping issue because it's so beautiful and it's yeah. got so much wide open space, but freedom camping down there was a huge issue. And, you know, some of the, the rhetoric from the local mayors down there, was pretty volatile at the time and they were they one mayor um in queenstown or central otago said they disagreed that the new zealand government was marketing new zealand as one giant campground and they felt that the central government and the way they're promoting freedom camping and through the act and its enforcement and policing of the self-containment standard sort of sent the wrong message to tourists from overseas mm. and, mm. and that caused all the problems that were going on yeah, it's a it's a it's a classic story about capacity, infrastructure, and nimbyism, and that that kind of le leads me to the next question, uh, Shannon. Is if you could describe the theories and and kind of concepts that underpin this work, and I'm, you know, urban political ecology features, over tourism features, and nimbyism features at, at the very least. So it's a fascinating way that you weave some of these ideas together. Could you could you share a little bit about all that? Yeah. Overtourism is sort of a new kind of idea in the discourse. It's growing, has grown in the last sort of 10, 15 years, but the overtourism is the idea that um, as, as countries move away from, you know, manufacturing, tourism GDP became num the number one focus of these countries. And yeah. it was a real uh, matter of just get people in the country, give them spending money, bring the foreign currency. And, and you know, I think it was 2017 where tourism sort of eclipsed dairy uh, dairy production in New Zealand as the primary GDP driver. So the country was changing, it was transforming quickly. Um, so, you know, you've seen through social media and platform capitalism and you know, the apps and things, tourists have a lot more information at their disposal than they used to. And they can just be in a lot more places, you know, a lot quicker and in a high volume because, you know, the um, central governments are just happy to, to pack the country and then let the the local authorities kind of deal with what's going on through their own bylaws and their own sort of local plans. But this sort of hands-off approach or market-first approach caused a lot of problems. And then you, with political ecology is the, you know, the relationship between economic power or capital power and 
and social groups and the environment and the with freedom camping you were effectively seeing all the land 200 meters from any road in new zealand made available as a value added it was to entice a foreign tourist to come to the country because they could park their car anywhere and stay for free and I, this is what a lot of the local uh, authorities and local residents disagreed with how uh, the, all the land around the roads in New Zealand was being commodified as one giant campground unfairly yeah. without, without any thought or infrastructure preparation and it was just a little laissez-faire for the people who lived in the the high value environments like Queenstown, uh, Akaroa, Coromandel, Northland to a degree, Gisborne, they had their own they had their own kind of way of dealing with freedom camping but anywhere where it was attractive to freedom campers were dealing with like large numbers. And then when there's large numbers of people, there's all the sort of associated social issues and environmental issues you get you know, with, you know, uh, you know, noise and, 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 and rubbish and people toileting and places they shouldn't and, and, and all that kind of thing. And, that, and yeah. this became a big issue over, over the course of its sort of um, open, open period. Right. And I mean, there's a certain universality to the ideas that you're playing with, because with tourism comes wealth, uh, with with wealth comes questions of territorial, who owns what and, and territorial disputes. Mm. And I mean, San Diego, where you live, is is no different in that respect. But what I really like is how the universality of the concepts in the paper gets really kind of toothy treatment in terms of the empirical material uh, that you you deal with. And, and you you don't shy away from some of the more bare-knuckled comments um, from, from respondents, especially those who are frustrated with freedom campers, who, who discriminate against freedom campers, who, who stereotype freedom campers. And so in, if you were to look at the paper, what are some key takeaways, both empirical and conceptual, that you, you wanted to convey to the reader? Yeah, well, the, the, the topic, the, the title of my master's thesis was, you know, looking at the social relations of, you know, going on down there. So I think I conducted 31 respondent interviews, long form, um, with the highest, I, I spoke with um, elected officials in the you know, New Zealand government. I spoke with the deputy mayor of Christchurch, the mayor of Selwyn. I spoke all the way down to dog walkers on the beach, people that own craft stores in Brighton. <laughs> Um, I spoke. I spoke to two German um, tourists. They were giving each other haircuts in the back of their freedom camping van. <laughs> I, I conducted, you know, twenty-one days of field work. I knew the area well. I, I did long-form interviews. I had a pretty clear structure of my questioning. I wanted to sort of uh, code the responses for emotions, with, you know, thematic analysis, and my sort of analysis of, of their answers and what I was getting. And yeah, you. You got a lot of emotion. Um, you know, you even got a lot of emotion at the highest levels of government too. Some of the more, you know, one elected official described freedom camping as visually invasive. You know, and that and that was got quite a key phrase, and that hung throughout the thesis because I think that was the issue. People, New Zealanders are happy to people to come to the country, and New Zealanders love foreigners, but there was the the visceral nature of freedom camping. We just got a little sort of on New Zealanders' nerves, I think, you know, seeing the the laundry or the washing hanging on the jungle gym and 
there were there were news reports of people using their iPhones to video foreign people defecating in the in the, uh, in the and it was on and it was on the six o'clock news, you know. And I was oh, watching yeah. this. This is unbelievable. What is going on? <laughs> like, like tonight on the news, six o'clock. Freedom Camper defecates in City Street in Dunedin. You know, yeah. we have the. They they went and interviewed the person that they were videoing doing it. It was unbelievable. It, you know, the, there was a real moral panic going on. There was you know social moral disgust. And it got all activated and, and all this othering. And there's a lot of othering in the language. And the, but the, the the thing that I, I I felt I could I sort of could identify is there were these two groups that were clashing, but it was the central government who let them down by not providing the infrastructure and the messaging mm. in the in the nature of the legislation. So the the work comes back to the legislation and how it being so permissive and there being no enforcement and and everyone was kind of on their own the local authorities that if, if a government, if a central government wants to generate, you know, high GDP, you've got to have sort of clear messaging and clear guidance on what was going on. And, and those five, six years where it was kind of all anything goes, things did get kind of out of hand on a mm. environmental and a social perspective, but they were, you know, the country was doing really well with its tourism GDP. They were make they were making a lot of money from, the visitors and until you know COVID 2020. Yes. Awesome. And and what one of the most spectacular parts of the paper is you accurately and I think very convincingly convey some of the moralistic and hazardous language deployed by locals, you know, I'm sick of the foreign tourists, I'm sick of the American they're not all Americans. I'm, I'm sick of the foreign tourists defecating, pooing, being all over. But you force the reader, I think, in very productive ways to shift the gaze away from individual actions and towards structural conditions that that were, were making this possible. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, can't, you can't enact policy change without necessary infrastructure uh, improvements or changes. And that was exactly what happened in the case of the Freedom Camping Act. So it's really interesting. One last question before we, well, two more questions, one more related to your co-authors. So you're the first author on this, along with uh, Alice Beban and Vicki Walters. Could you speak a little bit about their role in the paper? Yeah, they were the supervisors um, of my master's thesis. Vicky, Vicky Walters, I had been taking her classes in Massey, and then Alice came on. Alice came on as a supervisor to my master's thesis project, and they were they worked with me throughout, you know, from start to finish. Um, and and their expertise in space and place sociology was. Um, yeah, it was fantastic. They, they pushed me really hard. They, they they got everything that I presented. They, you know, questioned it from, you know, five different angles. And, you know, it was um, you know, pretty rigorous kind of experience. Mm. Um, to get um, but like, you know, Alice and Vicky are uh, um, well regarded in that kind of field. So I was very lucky to have them come on um, and, and, and help me out. And, and especially Alice, especially with this journal article, uh, it's been really great in helping me sort of get this, you know, to you. Awesome. Um, thanks. It's it's almost like you had, you know, a serious round of revisions and reviews before you even submitted the paper to the journal. So any sort of comments from anonymous reviewers about the merits and drawbacks of the paper would have been child's play compared to um, what you had to go through, it sounds like, with with Alice and Vicky. But that's all all the better for the quality of the paper. 
Yeah, I, I think the sociology department at Massey is in good, you know, is in good shape with uh, people like them. They um, they get the really, you know, the, the best out of the people, and they're curious and they're open to new ideas and new ways of looking at things. And you know, nothing, you know, nothing cannot be explored, you know, as far as they're concerned. Right. Cool. So, two part fi- final question, which is, where are we at now, and the, the, what I mean by that is, where are we now with freedom camping in New Zealand and in Christchurch? We're four years after the writing up of the paper and the thesis, and a lot's changed with COVID and so on. And also, it's fascinating to me uh, about your role as a transportation planner. You're not an academic. So where are you now with how this paper relates to the work that you do? How does it inform what you do or not? Sure. Well, the Freedom Camping Act started in 2011 as you know i conducted my field research in 2018 the end of 2018 and i wrote it in 2019 and of course you know march 2020 COVID hit so you know unknown to me unbeknown to me you know i was documenting the sort of the wild west period of freedom camping in new zealand because it, mm-hmm. all, it all ended abruptly and you know alice being in new zealand said you know was saying that things were really changing with the viewpoint towards you know freedom camping they a lot of these um local communities wanted the freedom campers back after 18 months they had a little break and they wanted <laughs> yeah yeah they missed them um that was interesting and another thing i found quite interesting is um you know hiring a, a maui camper or or a, or a freedom camping van in for new zealand is this can be quite expensive you know and it's easy to do things with foreign currency in New Zealand. But then during 2020, 2021, when New Zealand was on COVID lockdown and kind of safe from COVID, the, the, the freedom camping companies were marketing to the New Zealanders. And I saw many of my friends go mm. on large scale freedom camping expeditions that they would never have done in, in normal conditions because the, the prices were cut. So it was a time for New Zealanders to be the freedom campers, to miss the freedom campers and kind of, you know, we all reevaluated our lives during COVID. And now, you know, it's not what it was. Um, and I know the, the Freedom Campers are coming back. And, you know, it's, they're calling it responsible camping now, or they were. And it, it's another sort of time. So the my research was looking at, you know, the, sort of the, the crazy days of Freedom Camping. And it, and it ended up timing in a way that, it closed sort of just as I submitted the paper. So you have this kind of snapshot of that time. My my current job is a transportation planner. I'm an associate transportation planner and I work in a local development review. So a lot of what I do is very similar to the, um, the work that I did in this thesis where I look at um, environmental documents submitted by um, project proposals and I evaluate the, the, the project in regards to the the CEQA or the California Environmental Quality Act, and uh, and if it's close to the Department of Transportation, the Caltrans right of way, um, I have to evaluate the impacts to our right of way, mm. and, and then we send it out for functional review with engineers, hydrology, a whole range of uh, Caltrans engineers who evaluate the report. I summarize the, the the findings from the engineers. And then I send that back to the project lead, which is usually a local authority, a city or an agency. So as far as freedom camping and what I did in this research, uh, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of similarities because mm. 
Yeah, we have, as you know, we have these things over here in the States, you know, called parking rights. I, I, I'm not sure of New Zealand, what they call the New Zealanders. Like, like, you know, you park up and I, and I would say to my boss, I'd go, they go, what did you do in, in your, 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 what was your research? And I said, well, imagine if the federal government said you could camp in every park and ride in the country and the local city council or the state government had to pay for it. But it was the American federal government saying, come to America, you can stay in every park and ride across this whole country up to 200 meters. You know, you can imagine the problems. Of course, America's a larger country, but that was how I would sort of explain it to them. And I deal with these spaces and these environments, you know, near um, the right of way. So yeah, the, the job I do now is directly related to what I've done um, with freedom camping uh, in New Zealand. I have to say that is a beautiful, and I'm using the Kiwi slang there, beautiful metaphor for freedom camping tensions here in, in New Zealand because park and ride, kiss and ride. I mean, you're going to get fined. You're going to get boot a boot uh, if, if you spend more than enough time uh, yeah. in, in these areas in the States. I mean, they're very highly protected, surveilled areas. And they're sacred, really, because uh, you're supposed to be riding rather than just parking or kissing rather than, uh, you know, and instead of sticking around. So I like that. I hadn't even thought about it that way. So and transportation is, is a universal part of of, of the tourism experience that I think gets underappreciated. And so that's one of the real contributions of this paper, I think, in tourism geographies is that you bring the idea of transportation, not just mobilities, but transportation to the fore. Yeah, I saw, I always saw it as a transportation um, type problem because you, you have the vehicles, you have the parking lots and you have the 200 meters from the road. And then you have the people sharing the space. And then, you know, in the, in the paper, there are people who like to, pull up and eat fish and chips at six o'clock and watch the sun and watch the boats go by in New Zealand. It's like a New Zealand thing. Eat the fish and chips, park up. But then if you've got 15 bands blasting music, freedom campers and, and people doing all uh, sorts of things, it, it, it sort of upset the the way um, New Zealanders interacted with their space and their public mm. space. This, this was sort of a driver of the tension in the areas where freedom camping was was, was highly visible. Fantastic. Well, thanks very much, Shannon. I, do you have any other final words uh, before we break? Uh, no, no, that's it. Yeah. I mean, just it, it come from a master's thesis, this work. Um, if you want to get deeper into it, uh, it's on Google Scholar and you can find it there. And I took all the photos and I did lots of interviews and it was very interesting work and uh, I'm really proud of it. And yeah, if, if this, if you want to look into, I, I, I delve pretty deeply into the act and, and neoliberal governance and a lot of, even sort of the host gaze and tourist gaze, some of the sort of principles of tourism about the way we see each other and how we respond and that kind of sort of basic sense is all in there. And yeah, exploring some of the ideas around it, the wider areas, yeah, incredibly interesting um, stuff. And, and it, it does help me in the job that I have now. So I'm, I'm yeah, really happy for it. Really great. It's an awesome endorsement for, you know, trying to find a venue that will publish master's work. Some some students are intimidated by that. You're obviously not. And it worked out wonderful. But also the conversation between academia, the ivory tower, the real world and everyday everyday professional jobs is 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 overstated, in my view. And, and you're an example of that. 
Thank you to Shannon Aston, my guest today on the Tourism Geographies podcast. Uh, Shannon can be uh, reached at shannonaston at gmail.com. That's Shannon, S-H-A-N-N-O-N-A-S-T-O-N at gmail.com. If you have further questions, he's also, the paper's available on the Tourism Geographies website, Taylor and Francis. It's also available uh, on Google Scholar. And uh, don't forget to follow Tourism Geographies on Twitter at Tourism Journal. And uh, thanks again to Shannon for being my guest. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. And we'll see you next time. Kia ora. Thanks very much for joining us on this episode of Tourism Geographies Podcast. Won't you join us again next week for another episode? I'm Jamie Gillen. Talk to you later. Kia ora.